Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores our human condition from the why we do what we do perspective. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. On Behavioral Grooves, we like to talk with researchers and authors and practitioners to unlock the mysteries of our behavior by using a behavioral science lens. But before we get into our episode, Kurt, I wanted to ask you if you've ever been paralyzed by perfectionism. I, I was paralyzed right there because oh. I'm, I'm <laughs> trying to be perfect. <laughs> I mean, I'm paralyzed all the time. I mean, come on, perfection. All that, no, I, no. I, you know, I, you know, it's a really good question. I guess. I mean, I'm I'm not really sure what perfectionism really is. Well, let's listen to what our guest has to say about that. Okay, so perfectionism is often confused with things like conscientiousness, diligence, perseverance, meticulousness, all these great things that come from a very active, optimistic place of wanting to do better, wanting to uh, improve, etc. Perfectionism is not those things. Perfectionism comes from a much deeper place. It comes from a place of lack and a sense of in, uh, inadequacy, essentially, that I'm not good enough, I'm not perfect enough. And so all of this striving, all of these needs to impression manage and perfect everything in all around us really comes from a place of, well, I have to prove to other people in the world around me that I'm not flawed, that I'm not deficient. And so striving for perfection is really the way that in our, in our minds, we think that we can do that. Okay. Well, given that definition, I think that I can definitely say that I am, have not, have not been seduced by perfectionism, at least okay. in my case where, you know, I, I, I get to, you know, this element where, you know, that's good enough. And I'm, I'm perfectly happy with that. Right. As, as we can tell. Perfectly. You're perfectly happy when you have perfectionism in your imperfection. Maybe, maybe that's it. I don't know. How about you? How about you? Well, I can speak to striving for perfection in my youth, uh, certainly in my musical life, at least. Um, I was, you know, desperately as a young teenager trying to overcome some perceived inadequacies in my life. And music was the way that I thought I could, you know, get healed, basically, or make somehow make something that was broken whole. Which of course, you know, it it like the good effect was I practiced a lot. Mm. I I got really good. You're good at music. Yeah, yeah, but it didn't heal any of the troubled areas <laughs> in my life. So it didn't uh, fill that hole. That didn't it did not. Yeah, yeah. And and that that you know, our, our guest Thomas Curran helps us to better understand where that perfectionism comes from, which he pointed out is not what most people think. And, and he emphasizes how changing something like our mindset can make huge strides in helping us deal with those issues. Yeah. Thomas Curran is a professor of psychology and behavioral science at the esteemed London School of Economics, or LSE for those in the know. And you are <laughs> definitely in the know. <laughs> well, he's also the author of The Perfection Trap, Embracing the Power of Good Enough, which was just released August 8th in 2023. In the book, he explores the roots of perfectionism in wider society and explains how it affects our mental health and productivity. Best of all, we talked about practical strategies for overcoming it by learning to embrace imperfections in work, play, relationships, podcasts, all of those things. <laughs> I was super pleased to learn that Thomas is a guitarist and a researcher and an author, like this mighty triumvirate that I can only aspire to. No, Tim, I, I already thought you were that. In fact, I think you're a quadrivant, uh, whatever <laughs> four would be, adding on podcasting to those other three. There you go. So, yeah. Mm. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. So, one more thing. Before we jump into our conversation with Thomas, we want to let you know that there is some swirling sounds going on from time to time. We tried. We tried, but we couldn't fix 100% of it. We're not we're not that perfect, but we wanted to let you know that it's not in your headphones. It's in the recording. Yeah. For some reason, we got some of what recording engineers call anomalous digital artifacts in the mix, and we apologize. So for now, I have to get back to my pursuit of perfection. Oh, just kidding. <laughs> hey, man, relax, relax. Okay. We don't have to be perfect all the time. Okay. So why don't you just join the Groovers by sitting back in a comfortable spot, pour yourself a nice, nice, nice frothy draft of 
imperfection, satisficing mindset and listen to our conversation with Thomas Curran. Thomas Curran, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you for having me. We are happy to have you here, and we need to find out first in our speed round, do you prefer scotch or beer? Beer. Ooh, nice. Very, that, uh, <laughs> decisiveness. That, All right. That, that's a plus. Um, so if you had to pick a place to live, would it be, uh, and forgive me, I am going to Oh, you're going to totally screw up this up. These, I'm going I'm oh, to yeah. mess up the it's pronunciation of these, both of these names. So Wellenborough, England, or Padua, Italy? Padua, 100%. Yeah, okay. it's it's warm. Everyone's really friendly. It's chilled out. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I love that. Wow, coming from somebody who who lives in the UK or grew up in the UK, that's uh, that's fantastic. Okay, uh, third speed round question: Which is more stressful, giving a TED talk or writing a book? Uh, that's not a fair choice. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. There's, so there's so both, both are. Both. There's no stress in either one, right? Actually, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I could do them both in my sleep. Um, oh, goodness me. They're both horrendous. <laughs> well, we uh, might have to talk about that. that, that okay. like, so, is okay. there a difference in the kind of stress that you get from each of them? One just goes on forever. One has a definitive ending point, but the definitive ending point is so, so stressful. <laughs> I would rather string it out over time like you can with a book. Oh, <laughs> uh, oh. I don't know. I, look, uh, I would probably say writing a book is, is probably my preferred form of communication. So let's go with that. Okay. Okay. Well, good. There you go. All right. Last speed round question. Do you recommend that a perfectionist write a book about perfectionism? No. <laughs> well, you need to ask my editor this question, not me. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Fair enough. So, so you were you were very open in the book that you consider yourself a perfectionist and you're writing this book about perfectionism. So um, let's just start, though, before we get into that about what is your definition of perfectionism and help our, our, our listeners understand um, exactly what you're talking about here? Okay, so perfectionism is often confused with things like conscientiousness, diligence, perseverance, meticulousness, all these great things that come from a very active, optimistic place of wanting to do better, wanting to uh, improve, etc. Perfectionism is not those things. Perfectionism comes from a much deeper place. It comes from a place of lack and a sense of in, uh, inadequacy, essentially, that I'm not good enough, I'm not perfect enough. And so all of this striving, all of these needs to impression manage and perfect everything and all around us really comes from a place of, well, I have to prove to other people in the world around me that I'm not flawed, that I'm not deficient. And so striving for perfection is really the way that in our, in our minds we think that we can do that. Um, so it's really the starting point that's important to recognize when we talk about perfectionism and it comes from a place of deficiency. So uh, I think in lay terms, a lot of people would associate having high standards with perfectionism. Are, are, are they in the, in the same ballpark? Well, high standards are, as I say, there's, there's, a, there's a common conventional wisdom that perfectionism is synonymous with high standards, but that's just not, the case. Um, perfectionism can produce high standards. People with perfectionism do uh, shoot for very high goals. But the reason why they shoot for those goals is important for us to recognize and that we're trying at all times to, uh, to prove to the world that we're worth something, that we're not flawed, that we're not inadequate, that you know, there's something of value to us. Um, and so we do strive for high standards, but we're doing so very much in a, in a very defensive way to try to uh, conceal and hide what we think is imperfect inside. And, and that's, mm. and that really is, is I think that we have to grasp that kind of rooted sense of deficit if we want to understand what perfectionism really is or how it really impacts us. So one of the things that you said in the book that really struck me as interesting because I had never thought about it in this way. And now that you're talking about the definition of perfectionism, I think it makes a little more sense. But, um, and I'm going to quote, it says, you state, per quote, perfectionism is not a personal obsession. 
it's a decidedly cultural one, end quote. And so in that piece, can you help us understand what that what that is and, and how is perfectionism cultural and, and what is, is that cultural part the piece that says we have to be perfect and if we're not, that's the black part that you talked about, this need to to kind of showcase this? Or how does that parlay itself into um, what perfectionism is? Yeah, so let's go back to the, what, I, what I said a minute ago about perfectionism coming from deficit, a sense that I'm not enough, I'm not perfect enough, and therefore I have to go about the world proving to other people and everyone all around me that I'm worth something, that I matter, that you know, I'm, va- I'm validated, I'm approved of. Um, and there's a curious symmetry there between how society itself functions in a sense, because if you think about the way the economy works, it works on a, the, same, the same deficit uh, system, that we have to continually strive to do more, to be more, to consume more in order for our economy to grow, because consumption in a service economy, in a supply-side economy like ours, requires thermonuclear levels of consumption in order to keep itself standing still, never mind growing. So at all times, we have to be held in a, in a state of not quite having or being enough in this moment. There's always something more. There's always something we can buy. There's always more work we can put in. Uh, there's always more hustling, more grinding we can do. And that, and, and that really gets into the bones after a while. And I think if we want to understand what's happening with uh, young people in particular, but everyone, really, when we talk about perfections of being so widespread and these beliefs really uh, cutting across all sorts of different people, we have to, uh, we have to look to our society and our economy and ask what is it in that society what is it in that economy that's creating those feelings of not being enough of not having enough of not uh, doing enough and as i say i think there's there's symmetry between the perfectionistic beliefs of deficit and also an economy that needs us to feel a sense of deficit in order for it to grow uh, this this economic analogy is really beautiful and it makes me think about uh in behavioral science we talk about maximizing or versus satisficing and how, you know, uh, going back to Herb Simon's comment, you know, that we can drive a lot more, typically we can drive a lot more joy in life out of satisficing than maximizing. But what what you're describing here is more of a maximizing sense uh, with associated with perfectionism. And it's also why it's so wrong-headed because it's not only more joy, but you also get more productivity. Uh, you actually get more out with a, a more balanced, more harmonious way of living and working. Uh, and we know this is so much data, but probably the most interesting data right now that's coming out is a four-day week experiment, which is showing actually, you know, you can take a day away and still get the same productivity from people because in the moments of the hour in work, they're replenished, they're rejuvenated, they're happy. They're producing the same amounts, in some cases more. It's remarkable. So this push to maximize is driving us to perfectionism, it's not making us happier. And there's also a lot of evidence to suggest it's not making us work any harder or any more productive. Well, and I think there's another aspect of this that the people that get highlighted in the press and natural, you know, the the Steve Jobs of the world, the Elon Musks of the world who are on famously talking about 100-hour work weeks and different pieces. And those are the people that um, are kind of out there on the pedestal that we go, well, if I want to succeed, this is how they did it, and that's what's being out there. So is that part of this cultural component as well, or how does that play in to this this kind of element of perfectionism as it comes out? Well, definitely. But by the way, we ignore counter-examples, for example, like Richard Branson, for instance, he would uh, be a lot more sanguine about having <laughs> giving yourself a bit of a break, having more time out, allowing yourself to make mistakes, and all this sort of stuff. Right, right. So that's the first point. Yes, but we do zero in on the kind of extreme outliers, and that's natural, right? Like we, you know, these are the people who have kind of really soared to levels which become exceptionally interesting to the everyday person. Um, but they're survivors as well, right? They've come through a very selective system which has required a lot of hard work, yes, diligence, yes, flexibility, yes, maybe imperfectionism, but also incredible, incredible amounts of luck, being in the right place at the right time, 
having um, uh, met people or been in networks or being born to uh, social circumstances that have made, made that uh, transition a little bit easier. There's all sorts of different things that have occurred that are beyond those kind of, you know, those self-narratives about hard work and all the rest of it that have, that have led them to where they are. So, I mean, there's two things I'd say to that. The first is obviously there are counterexamples that shows it can be done without that amount of effort, but there's also survival bias that we're falling into the trap of there by, by looking at these people thinking, oh, well, it must have been their perfectionism and the hard work that got them there and ignoring all the other uh, factors that have been just as important, if not more. Yeah, it's always it's always interesting when people point out, oh, well, so-and-so gets up at four every morning and does this and this and this. And you go, okay, they might have been successful, but there are countless others who ha- get up at four and do the same routine and are not the same as you set, pointed out. It's that survivorship bias. It's that element of there's luck, there's, uh, you know, whatever is going into that situation that drives them. And as you said, when you look at the research, as you talked about the four-day work week, what we're seeing is that the research doesn't necessarily hold up to that kind of lay person mentality, the the ethos that is out there that this is the only way of making the success that you have to, you know, hustle and strive and, and be constantly on. And that doesn't seem to be the case. So, and again, as Tim knows, I, I go off on my little uh, diarrhoeas and I don't have a question following that up. Um, <laughs> well, can I go get, come in there just quickly because it, I can tell you exactly why that is. But okay, so, great. So what you, what you have is a situation where you kind of, if you think about um, returns to effort in terms of productivity as a, as a kind of almost like an inverted U relationship. So there's a kind of perfect amount like where it's comfortable, you're, getting, you're replenishing, you're getting time off, but you're also working hard. And then you burst through that threshold into a zone of decline in returns where every additional hour you work is getting slightly less output. And then you can burst through that still to so that now every additional hour of work that you do is going to have the inverse returns to your productivity because you're sacrificing things like sleep, time with friends, time off, rejuvenating activities that mean you can do work vitalized and rejuvenated uh, and therefore you're, you're more productive. So basically what you're doing is you're burning yourself out. You're working so hard that it's unsustainable and you burn out. And this, by the way, is what perfectionists do all the time. It's a really strong relationship to perfection is, is there any, uh, talking about the research, is there any research that you just turn to and just go, wow, this is just gold? Like the, the results from, from this work just really, really help put a pinpoint, really... Uh, highlight this specifically. I realize that there aren't any silver bullets, um, but but this is your book is about data. Uh, yeah. are, what's your favorite data? Oh, my favorite data. I've got one piece, one study, which is in a really crappy journal. Um, <laughs> but this is the thing, you know what? Like some of the best work is found in these little places. So that was the first. By the way, the burnout thing is the first reason why perfectionists, people that work so hard, go above and beyond, don't tend to perform as well as you might think they would. But the second reason is more fascinating, I think, and that's because when the going gets tough, perfectionistic people tend to withhold themselves. Let me give you, and I'll show. I'll tell you a lab experiment where we should, where we show this. So uh, we did a lab experiment a few years ago. Now we got people in the lab, and we used Sports are really good microcosm of broader sort of competitive um, environment. We got them in the lab and we, did, we told them to do a cycling task, okay, against the goal that they should comfortably meet. So you should cover this amount of distance in this amount of time based on your fitness. It should be comfortable for you, no problem. So we say, where you go. We get them cycling, cycling really, really hard, as hard as they possibly can to meet this goal. And then at the end, we tell them, no matter how well they did, you failed. You didn't quite meet the goal, unfortunately. And then we said, don't worry, you can have another go. And that's when something remarkable happens. So this is really beautiful. So the people who are not very high in perfectionism, when they have a second attempt after the first failure, they don't really change their effort, right? If anything, they put in a little bit more effort on the second attempt. But the perfectionistic people do the opposite. Their effort falls off a cliff. Wow. They just withhold themselves in that second attempt because the embarrassment, the guilt, the shame of having not met that goal they should have comfortably met, but is so intense that they don't want to feel those things again. They don't want to put themselves through that embarrassment again. So they just take themselves away because you can't fail this and you didn't try it. 
Mm. And that's the internal dialogue that's going on in perfectionist people's mind. They're so intensely fearful of failure that they will do everything they can, including sabotaging their chances of success, to avoid it. And so that's, that was a beautiful study. Again, it's in a really obscure journal, but that was a beautiful study that really demonstrated quite glaringly the extent to which uh, perfectionist people can really get in the way of their own success by trying intently to avoid failure. Which I think goes to the point of when you said the like the the definition of perfectionism at the beginning. It's this deficit that people have because again, I was assuming when you started describing this that when the second chance came, that you were going to say perfectionists went doubled down on their effort and different things. But it makes absolute sense once you realize oh wait they're protecting their ego they're protecting that that self um kind of sense of of worth if i don't try i can't be hurt and i i love that piece i'm going to switch topics here uh as we're as we're thinking about this but uh, when you when you look is there any research that shows a, a parenting style is there anything as we're it, you, we just realize you're a, a, a relatively new father right is there anything my kids are probably too late i probably already screwed them up but you know is there anything uh, in the research about parenting style helicopter parenting versus free range is there anything that that lends itself to this or is this a, a larger picture that that isn't really part of what creates a perfectionist person I mean, there's so much empathy for parents. There's no one size fits all. There's no way to do it. I think you become a parent, you realise that you have all the greatest intentions, and then you find yourself as a helpless spectator. <laughs> <laughs> that is a uh, no truer words were ever said, uh, right, right there. There it is. So, so, just all the parents out there, please don't worry. Look, you know, there are things you can do. There are broad philosophies that you can take into parenting that across all of the difficulties, struggles and strife you can you can try to put into place. The big one is to not make your love, approval, affection contingent on success and failure. No matter what happens, whether your child has done well or whether they haven't done quite so well, love them. Just keep loving them all the time. There's a tendency and a temptation in this culture, highly competitive culture where educational attainment is the be-all and end-all, quite literally, difference in your life chances, to subtly defer approval for your children when they haven't quite, you know, uh, made an A grade or, or, or done, you know, stellar in school, right? To say, okay, yeah, that's great, but keep going, but keep going, keep going, keep trying, keep working. And what that does is it, it tells the child that they're never really worth it. There's always something more that they have to attain before they're before they're actually a, a worthwhile person. And I would I would you know this is so there's this temptation to do this, but I would do as much as you possibly can to try not to do that. Make sure that your kids know that you know they're loved no matter what happens. And if they fail, and they will fail many many times, and if they do, give them a hug and tell them that this is an indictment on you. It's just one test of many hundreds of different tests, unfortunately, that they're going to be subjected to across their school life. It doesn't mean that their parents don't value them as much. It doesn't mean that their, parent, their teacher doesn't like them. It's just one of many tests. And there's going to be another one, and there's going to be another one after that, and there's going to be another one after that. So, you know, try not to pin those things on, on how you feel about yourself or, you know, your, your emotional state in that moment. Uh, try to see the bigger picture and learn from it instead. That's probably the biggest piece of advice I could give. Um, yeah, don't make don't make a level affection continue. That's fantastic. You know, you you never mention Carol Dweck in the book, but there's certainly a sense of growth mindset in just what you're saying right now. You know, to move away from a fixed mindset to a to a growth mind, mindset. Does that uh, does that resonate with you? It does. However. I don't think Carol meant this to happen, but her growth mindset sort of congealed into something of a cliche in modern culture Uh, and has has kind of, uh, has turned into something else where we we feel all the time that we have to turn our shortcomings or failures or setbacks into growth or excellence. Almost kind of rehabilitate those very humanised experiences on the redemptive arc of something else turn it into a learning experience. And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that's always a bad thing, but sometimes in life, there really is nothing you can learn from failing. Uh, 
you just slipped, you just slipped up, right? You got out of bed the wrong. Side. Yeah, wow. Uh, you know, you knew what to do. You knew what to do, but you just didn't quite pull it off on that occasion. And I, I think this kind of obsession we have of turning everything into growth, growth and growth and growth and more growth and more growth and overlaid with perfectionism can lead us down, uh, I would say, a difficult pathway. And I would, yeah, I, I would, I would say growth is great, but sometimes we don't always have to grow. And that's also great. And failure shouldn't define us, nor should it not define us. It just is a thing that we encounter as fallible human beings. And, and that sometimes we can just let it wash over us. Sometimes we can just let it in and not do anything with it. And that's okay. So, yes, you know, I am a fan of growth mindset, but taken to an extreme, I think it can turn into perfection. Well, that's yeah. good for us, Tim, because we have failures all the time and we just let that roll off of our backs, never learning anything from it all the time. So we're, we're, we're doing good there. Um, Thomas, uh, in the book, you talk about three types of perfectionism. Can you talk a little bit about those, the self-oriented, socially prescribed and other oriented piece? Yeah, so over many, many decades, and this is not my work, this is work by uh, many different researchers and clinicians, but in particular Paul Hewitt and Gordon Fleck, Canadian uh, professors who uh, uh, have done much of the heavy lifting here. And, and in their clinical observations and research, they've identified three types of perfectionism. The first is self-oriented perfectionism. That's what most people think about and think about perfectionism. So it comes from within an intense drive to be perfect, fused with quite harsh self-criticism they haven't been perfect. But there was also some social elements of perfectionism that um, they're observing in their work uh, that also perfectionism people would report. So this sense that other people expect me to be perfect is quite strong among perfectionism people. They sense that the outside world demanded perfection and people were judging you if you hadn't been perfect. And there was also perfectionism that turned out under other people. So that perfectionism that I feel in myself that I need to be perfect at all times. I'm also expecting other people, you to be perfect at all times. Because if I'm going to rake myself over hot coals, you're going to do it too. That's only fair. <laughs> so this, this other-oriented kind of style of perfection where we turn that perfection to other people, expecting to be perfect, uh, is, is the third element. And those are the three. Oh, thank you. And, and it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, none, none of them have have good outcomes. I mean, self-oriented has a little bit of evidence that it could produce some performance benefits, but it's really tiny, and you've got to weigh that against what's lost, which is an inability to uh, feel satisfaction in any kind of accomplishment that we, that we make. But social described and oriented certainly, like those two, really bad, particularly in social relationships, but also I'm in the Well, not to continue on the bad news, but you also note that perfectionism doesn't really improve with age. There is no sort of natural or there doesn't appear to be in the data, and correct me if I'm if I'm wrong here, Thomas, that that perfectionism sort of naturally remedies itself as we get older. Is that right? No, so we we don't have unfortunately we don't have life course data, but we do know that over a period of time, what we tend to see in imperfectionistic people is uh, we can't haven't followed their perfections through, but we've followed sort of allied traits through, and you, you see that perfectionistic people, unlike other traits like eroticism, which tends to ameliorate over time slowly, um, you don't see their perfectionism, they become a little bit more irritable, a little bit more agitated as they go older. And that's because I think perfectionism creates a bit of a, a feedback loop. So the higher goals we set for ourselves, the more failure we encounter because those goals are too high. So we set even higher goals to overcompensate for the uh, feelings of uh, deficiency and anxiety that we feel. We fail again. Uh, we start to, again, engage in these kind of self-sabotaging behaviours to try to conceal from the world those failures that are now becoming quite public. Uh, and it spirals into a very... What, 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 we, what we consider to be quite negative thought process and behavioural patterns um, that unfortunately get worse, if not better over time. So that's really why it's so, so important if you kind of relate to these, these kind of thought patterns and behaviours to seek help. This help seeking is so important to break the cycle. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things you have to be aware of uh, from a young age and mm-hmm. if it's coming in, seek help. You talked in the book uh, about this rise, this kind of steep rise in socially prescribed perfectionism starting in 2005. Can you talk a little bit about what happened in 2005 that would all of a sudden make that steep rise occur? Uh, help us help us understand that. 
Uh, well, actually, the, the dates is uh, a little bit later than that, so around about 2007, 2008. And I okay. don't know, did something happen in 2007, 2008? I can't remember now. Is that a significant year? I'm not sure. Uh, I, think, uh, I think there might have been a few banking issues around that time, but... Um, <laughs> I don't know. I was too young. I was I was around the bandstand smoking cigarettes. <laughs> good, good. More more on that later. <laughs> but no, no. That I think. Look, there was a lot of things that started to happen around that time. Uh, the credit crunch, obviously, the big one. Social media became ubiquitous. Smartphones come on the scene. The iPhone yeah. came on the scene in two thousand and seven. So there was a lot of there was a lot of factors that seemed to come around the same time. All of which put more pressure on particularly young people. The economy slowed right down. Uh, jobs became a lot more difficult. Pace was stagnant. Um, it assets. Unfortunately, with the low interest rate environment started to go up, so it meant young people couldn't get on the housing ladder as easily. Uh, and all of these things come at the same time as social media, uh, amplifying perfect lives and lifestyles um, 24-7, uh, create really, I would say, an echo chamber of limitless perfection, a lot of stress, a lot of high expectations, a lot of uh, need to work excessively hard just to stand still. And all of this thing, I think, comes to a crescendo in the data that we're seeing where young people are perceiving those pressures as being uh, un unrealistic, um, uh, too lofty, and that's reflected in their ex uh, skyrocketing levels of socially described affections that we're seeing a lot more people right now. So these societal problems, I'm contrasting that with uh, this idea that the, the book is really about hope on, on some level, right? It's, a, it's about being hopeful. Help, help us work through how some of the bad news <laughs> is, is, can lead to a hopeful message. So here's the thing. You, one of the things that's really tough, right, because you hear a lot of hope and very optimistic language in these self-help books, you know, about, uh, and these are very powerful messages, by the way. I'm not, I'm not being down on the court. You know, be vulnerable, um, show yourself, open yourself up to the world, um, show your authentic self, and all the rest of it. Very helpful messages. But at, at the root of them is this sense that it's up to you, that you have the power to transform yourself from the inside out. And what I'm saying in my book is actually we have to tackle this problem from the reverse end of the telescope. We have to acknowledge that at some level we can try and try and try to change ourselves from the inside out, but we're still going to live inside an economy and a society that is constantly going to prey on those insecurities, that is going to tell us we're not enough because we need to be consuming and working as much as we possibly can. And if at the end of all that self-help, we still can't break that cycle, we go in on ourselves and we blame ourselves for why couldn't we snap out of it? Why is this working? Why is it working for other people but it's not working for me? And what I'm saying is the hope here is that we recognize that there is a broader context to these feelings, that they're not just perceptions, that they're not something that's wrong with you, that they are real, logical, and inevitable thoughts that come from living inside a world that is designed to create them. And if we can get our heads around that, what we, what we can do is understand that it's not our fault, that hmm. actually there's some power in understanding that this is how the world works, that I'm inside this culture and that I can take the personal responsibility off my shoulders and know that if I can confront the world as it actually is, not how I'd like it to be, then we can really start to make meaningful steps in the right direction. And what are those steps? Well, we can, we can uh, we, first of all, um, face the world exactly as it is. We can, we can instantly know that not everything we're going to do is going to have a positive outcome that we're going to meet setbacks, roadblocks, that there's going to be ups and downs, and that if we can accept that, this is something called radical acceptance, if we can radically accept that sometimes we just can't happen in the world all the time, that the world is going to happen to us, maybe heartbreak, grief, loss, maybe we get made redundant, maybe a global pandemic comes around the corner and screws <laughs> everything up. Right? These are things that we simply cannot control, even though we're told all the time that we can be the author of our own destiny. And if we can accept sometimes that we can put ourselves in, the, in on, on course to get to get to a place where we would like to be, knowing that it's not going to take perhaps, uh, it's going to take a long time, maybe even longer than we think it's going to take, knowing we're going to take, we're going to hit a lot of setbacks, a lot of roadblocks, there's going to be a lot of grief and heartache along the way. But if we can prepare ourselves for that journey and we can meet the world where it is, 
then I think we can, there's, there's a lot of contentment and a lot of power in that. Um, and so I, I think it's, for me, the message is about this being not your fault, about there being a bigger context to these feelings, and that if you can play, if you can, you know, live inside that reality, uh, that, then for me anyway, that was a big rebirth moment for me. Um, and, and I hope for other people before we got on air, you said that this isn't a, a self-help book, although what you just said, I thought it was really great because it does give you some actionable pieces to go on there. But but with that, you're not giving up, like, do X, Y, and Z, and you're going to feel better. And, and you, it's a three-step uh, program. Yeah, and, a three-step yeah. program to get over your perfectionism. Um, but you do, as part of the book, lay out kind of an economic model in the end. So it's more of a philosophical component when you're looking at this and the societal components within this. So can you talk a little bit about what that economic model look, looks like and how that plays into uh, this role? I think you were just talking a little bit about that, but can you expand upon that? Well, this is why it's two-pronged. Mm-hmm. If, we put every, if we put everything on the individual, then what we do is we we, uh, we we kind of absolve any responsibility in the society we live in, creating the shared tension that we live with. We say, well, we can't do anything about that, so we must manage those things ourselves. But if we accept that it is society that's creating the shared tensions in the first place, and that my, my whole research, the reason I'm writing this book is because I identified aggregate chance. The mean level of perfectionism is changing for everyone. So that doesn't tell us that something's wrong with us. It tells us that something's wrong with the environment in which we live. And so it was really incumbent upon me from that moment onwards to not just speak to people about those realities and try to forge some uh, ways in which we can manage and move past it, perfectionism for feelings as individuals, but also for us to take responsibility as a society and start to think about how we could create a society that wouldn't need so much perfectionism. Now, this is not a manifesto, and uh, a lot of people in, uh, it's been out in my book's been out in the UK now, and a lot of people are kind of confused in that final chapter as well. Well, this is what Tom would do if he was in charge. What I'm trying to do really with this chapter is as a thought experiment. To, to try to get to people think to think about how if we lived inside a society that didn't have growth as its one and only aim, that if it if it prioritized other aspects of development, like human prosperity, human health and well-being, that if it put a floor under poverty and a ceiling on wealth. If it allowed us to use AI and technologies for the betterment of people to release us from the drudgery of our, of the drudgery aspects of our jobs and use that additional time not to work more but to spend more time in our communities and at leisure, you know the tools are there. We can we can create and organise a society that prioritises humans and human health rather than shareholder value. We can do that if we wanted to. It just takes imagination and a sense uh, and, a, and a motivation. And so that chapter was really about trying to outline different things that we can maybe think about doing. And if we lived in that society, would we need perfectionism just to get by? And I want, I want readers really to engage in that thought experiment, not something that's going to actually happen, because I myself am not optimistic that these things um, will be things that will happen, but nevertheless to think about what would happen if we did live in such a world. So hammer home the point that this isn't an individual issue, or isn't just an individual issue, but is a societal problem that collectively we have to grapple with. So that was really the um, motivation behind the final chapter. Yeah. So within there, one of the things that you talked about was universal basic income. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you know that my feelings on this are I'm a big advocate of of universal basic income. And um, from a lot of the things that you were just talking about, this idea of uh, being able to remove using technology and tools and AI to remove the drudgery or if I have to work at a at some you know crappy place because I have to be able to pay as opposed to being able to explore my passions and other pieces and, uh, along this line. So I'm not going to get into into my side on this, but from your perspective, how how does that impact perfectionism and how would it either eliminate some of the the kind of elements that drive that? Uh, just help us understand that. I just I just think like on a on a print on a level of principle, I think jobs really should be about purpose. 
and they should be about affording us the discretionary income to thrive, not not the survival income to, to just live and exist, which is essentially what they are now. And I think every person in society deserves that flaw, um, enough money to afford the things they need, and then if and then jobs should be should be be there for us to afford the luxuries and the um, the add-on benefits. And I think at a very but I think there's, there's economic benefits as well that we could go into that no one in, in the UBI is dependent on anyone else for their livelihood. Right? Like everybody gets the same unconditional payment, right? And then beyond that, it's up to individuals. I think it takes the it takes the risk of destitution away, so that we can become more creative, entrepreneurial, so that people are more willing and able to take risks, which clearly has massive impacts. Um, uh, not just productivity, but um, dri- driving, particularly in you know modern age where technology, information technologies, and um, creativity and new innovations really drive the motor of the economy. Um, you can see it having some ma- that's really really important um, benefits. Also, in an era of AI, you know, I mean, AI is going to increase the, the productivity of, of cognitive work. You know, it's, it's going to do that. Um, and if we can use AI to have, you know, for the benefit of everybody, that's to say we take that productivity gains and we share it, then there's no reason why UBI can't be can't be implemented to um, as as a part of that, that productivity gain, um, so that we can, as I said, enjoy more time um, in our communities with our families and friends and the rest of it. So, you know, I know this is a very utopic argument. But I think a lot of people are coming round to the to the idea that you know there is there could be a place uh, for UBI, and as I say, I think broadly as a society, I think we would be way better off with it. But again, you know, I myself am not overly optimistic that it will happen. But there's some interesting experiments going on, and there's some hope there. The way that you're getting there, uh, you use the word utopian. Maybe you know, I mean, it's it's dramatic. But the world that you're describing just feels very pre-industrial revolution. Focus on uh, life rather than focus on work to, to a large degree. That the purpose of getting up in the morning isn't to complete a task at work so much as it is to live your life, which has broader implications. And I think that, that that's really cool. This, I have a question that is entirely off script because this is a podcast. We can delete it. But where, what are your thoughts about free will? You, you, yeah, you, you, I don't know whether we can, whether I'm very qualified to address this one. Um, well, and just and summarize um, your answer uh, in sixty seconds. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's 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 tough. I think I think there are questions about that. A lot of the work that I've done in the past is looking at you know flourishing and, and how we thrive. And a lot of criticisms of that work has been, well, that's, you know, you assume it's a very conscious process that we have, like, we consciously choose to have autonomy in the workplace and um, find ways to master and and feel a sense of competence. Uh, I suppose, you know, if we do or don't have free will, if, if... it's the it's the second round effect, right? So it's how we endorse those actions that matter. So do we endorse them as personally meaningful? Do we, do we reflect on them as as uh, things that give us um, a sense of accomplishment and pride, or do we um, or do we uh, feel like they're they're things that are done under duress and feel like we're being controlled in some way? So I think like my thoughts about free will aren't very complete and they're certainly not. Um, coherent, but um, that would be the, I guess, um, the answer I could give you. It's most kind of you to indulge me. Thank you. I wanted to switch over to talk about your very lovely little niglet there about. Well, uh, I spent a lot of time on the bandstand. Okay, so we have to we have to just dive a little bit into Thomas's history here. Are you a musician today, and were you in in younger days? So, so here's the thing: I'm, I'm a terrible singer. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm, I'm a reasonable guitarist, I would say. Uh, I used to play around in bands when I was younger uh, with some friends. We were terrible, um, but it was it was fun, and that's that's the main thing. And as I got older, can I, actually can I tell you a little? This is just links back to perfectionism. Tell you a little uh, As I got older, I started to like 
recoil a little bit from playing because uh, I, I mean, I love playing. I love songwriting. It's helped me through some of the hardest times of my life, but in private, right? Never in public because I can't sing. And I would always like ha- harbor a certain embarrassment about that because you know I wasn't perfect at something that I felt like it couldn't. Do you know what I mean? Like I couldn't, I couldn't show myself in that way. And and it was only when I started to really kind of get out of my comfort zone and start just playing around, and singing my songs, even though it's terrible, that I started to feel like I was really doing something with perfectionism, something quite profound. And and so giving myself permission, and this is a lesson for everyone, giving yourself permission to go out there and do things that bring you joy, right? But don't get consumed by the fear of like looking or sounding terrible because you may very well do, but that's okay as well. Like I know I'm terrible when I sing and writing music has really helped me through said, some of the toughest times of my life. And it's therapeutic. And I'm not going to get up on stage because my talents just aren't ever going to get me there. But being excellent at something or not being excellent at something, I should say, shouldn't stop you from doing it. And so I would say to everyone, you know, if you do have a, passion or a hobby just because you're not not world champion but just because you're not absolutely exceptional doesn't mean you shouldn't experience it doesn't mean you shouldn't enjoy it so i would consider myself a very bad musician but a musician that plays and sings and enjoys it all the same i it reminds me of uh of podcasters like Tim and me that you know are horrible at this, but we still do it. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead, Tim. When uh, I had been through the conservatory music and was in madrigal choirs and had to do all this kind of singing, and I never liked my voice. Just never, never, never. Uh, always just thought I had a terrible voice. And in my early 30s, decided to take voice lessons. So I found a teacher, and and I in the initial round of interview uh application she has me sing and sing and sing and i'm singing for half an hour without getting any kind of feedback and finally she stops playing and stops stops me singing and she says i think i can help you i'm like great this is fantastic she said but you have to start by unpuckering your asshole <laughs> and that I was, that was the key that was actually the key for me because I like like you I was a songwriter I was playing I was doing all these things and singing simply because I had to not because I wanted to because I didn't enjoy my voice but okay but this isn't about me Thomas I want <laughs> we- no, that's that's that is such good advice I should have put that in the book <laughs> <laughs> you you do have uh, tits over arse though or arse over tits or whatever no, that is arse over tits yeah a over t a over t yeah there you go. <laughs> but but what uh, so what would you what kind of music would you take with you if you were on a desert island for a year? What what how about two artists? Their collection, their catalog, yeah. Not not them in person. You don't have to you don't have to deal with them. Right. I mean, if I'm marooned on a desert island, that's going to be pretty scary. So, uh I think I'm going to have to take music that meets me where I am. So, Joy Division. Ooh. Uh, because um, Curtis' songwriting is incredible, voice is haunting, and yes. talks a lot about loneliness and alienation, and I think that would definitely meet me where I am. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> it would depress the shit out of me. But you look at him, and 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 again, but, I mean, but, oh, go ahead, but then, go. but then you got to go. Then you got to go the opposite, haven't you? You got to give yourself a lift. Um, and I would probably say uh, for that. For that side of things, I would probably have, um, let me think, I don't normally uh, have uh, listen to, to uh, put me in a good mood, Bruno Mars. Oh, that's yeah. I like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan, and I think there's a lot, the music is very upbeat, uh, very positive, so I'd probably kind of counterbalance Curtis with Mars, yeah. and I think that would make a good mix. That would be good because, uh, you know, Curtis's demise was not a good one. So, you know, no, it's, uh, not, you, yeah. you know, so I, you don't want to listen to too much because that might just push you over the edge. You, 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 <laughs> you, you bring that with Bruno and I love that. I, I love those, those combination there. So. Uh, exactly. When when the sun is shining, you know, everything's happy, a bit mass. And then, yeah. you know, when it's not, when, it, when you're having a bit of a low point, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it works, it works. Well, and as as I always, uh, Tim knows this. I've I've talked about like why do I listen to some really angry or depressing music, and and part of me is going, well, 
you know, I might be pissed off at the world, but I'm not that pissed off, right? <laughs> uh, it's like, right. I, I'm not anywhere near that level of depression. So, all right, I'm okay. This is good. There you go. So. I mean, also, like, it's, it's about m- matching. I, I think music for me is, like, really about meeting myself where I am in that moment. And sometimes, like, when I'm at a low point, it's, it, it's quite cathartic to yes. listen to yeah. music that meets you where you are in that moment. And when you're on a high, you know, stick on a day dancing or whatever just get it on the get it on loud it's, it, it's really about I think music is, is, is a, for me anyway it's a, it's a soundtrack to life yeah yeah well, and I've oh, I, I've heard this about music and poetry and different pieces is that you know part of the the benefit that we get from it is that as you said it meets you where you are but it also shows you're not alone that there are others out there that are experiencing these same emotions, these same uh, feelings that we have. And as you said, it's a soundtrack for life, but it's a shared life as opposed to a solitary, I'm the only one going through this. And, and there's something cathartic about that. And writing music as well. Oh my God, that's, that has helped me through some of the toughest times in my life, just sitting with my guitar and writing. And uh, you know, and a lot of those songs, those you know, those songs that we probably never, many of most of them I haven't sent to anyone. Uh, but in, like in those private moments, it's been so, uh, it's been it's been so useful. It's been so uh, helpful. So I I'm loving this podcast because I think psychology and music is, is where it's at. <laughs> I just want to say amen to that. I'm just going to say amen to that, Thomas. And uh, however, all good things must come to an end, and we are. So happy to have had the time with you. Thank you for being a guest on Behavioral Grooves today. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with Thomas, have a free-flowing conversation, and groove on whatever else comes into our perfect brains. Perfect. Wow. You know, we're, I was, well, well, I, you asked me, um, you know, if I was paralyzed by perfection and I paralyzed up, up front. And so you did. obviously you did. I must have a perfect brain. <laughs> is that not how that works? Is, I think is, that's, uh, that's what they call pretzel logic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I could be a pretzel. I know, I know that. No. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting though, right? This idea of perfectionism. I mean, we've had a couple guests on the show talking about perfectionism, and you and I know that that we are both very far from yeah. perfectionists. You know, that anybody who listens to this podcast can know that we are very far from. But but it took me a while to get here. You know, yeah, right. And and were you? I mean, the fact that you you got through a PhD program kind of says that you had to have some striving for some ideal. I don't it know if it was skate. perfectionism. I think it was just I might have high goals, but you know, perfectionism okay. isn't part of those goals. It's interesting, okay. right? Because I, I I can see this and I can see it in others. And there's a part of me that just wants to go and shake them and say, stop. You don't have to get that last 2% improvement. It, you're going to spend hours and hours and hours and the likelihood of anybody making a big difference anywhere is probably not that big. And then, you know, those people can come back and say, but you don't understand that 2% is really important. And and so it, I, I see it. It's a, it's a conundrum that we are in. It really is. Uh, I think you had even pointed out in an earlier conversation, Kurt, about how this idea of perfectionism is has been a part of our culture, at least in the United States. And I think I think this is definitely true in some cultures. You know, certainly I, I see it in in Asian cultures, like in China and Japan. But there's this sense that that gets summed up by Vince Lombardi's comment that perfection is not attainable. But if we chase perfection. We can catch excellence. So there's this underlying message of, oh, it's okay. Perfectionism really isn't attainable. But, oh, by the way, you should still go for it. <laughs> well, you know? and as Thomas Thomas said, he it's the socially acceptable flaw. 
Right. This is the flaw that everybody like goes, oh, yeah, you shouldn't be. But man, we hold those perfectionists up on pedestals and it's okay if you are stating I'm just trying to be perfect. And that's that that's a good thing. And as we said, who was the guest that we had that was talking about, you know, just working all of those hours and trying to be just so perfect in the job and all of the work that she did. And in the end, it was just, you know, it didn't give her the happiness, which is what I think Thomas is really pointing out here, the happiness or satisfaction that she thought it would. And I think that's the big crux of all of this is that this is, it's not about being perfect for perfect's sake. It's that the perfectionism is trying to fill some hole, as you mentioned in the intro. It's to take some aspect of our lives that is missing or not quite up to snuff, and we think we can solve it if we're only perfect. Yeah, I think you're you're actually referring to Jennifer Moss yeah. from episode 301. Uh, she did a, a really a great job of sort of teeing this up about being really smart and really driven, but being driven wasn't enough. There was a, a sense of perfectionism, which led to burnout. Yeah. So we know that there's a, a at least that consequence of it. I'm wondering why there isn't more uh, emphasis in our world that is just so ridiculously demanding on satisfying. You know, Her, yeah. Herb Simon's concept of yeah. satisfying. God, that was the 1950s. He came yeah. up with that. Yeah, the maximizer versus the satisfier, and. And in his work, if I am not misquoting it here, is that the idea that satisficers just live typically a happier, more well-rounded life. This idea that there's a certain standard, and then after that standard, it's like, take whatever you can, because that's good enough. And going on, you know, it's like you yeah. picking me as, as your co-host, right? It was like, hey, Kurt, you're good enough, right? Yeah, and I I feel like we've we've got we haven't drawn into that really great behavioral science observation. Uh, and for those of, for those gurus who aren't familiar with the term satisfying, it's really about being acceptable and satisfactory, and in a really good way, in a really healthy way, not just like you know giving in. It's like saying, "Hey, this is good enough," and yeah. and uh, it always always gets back for me to. Dick Thaler, when, uh, you know, when he said, it's not that we're dumb, it's that life is hard. Mm. So, so there could yeah. be more satisfying. I think that there'd be more happiness. So how does this fit into finding your groove? How does, does this play in from the fact that we need to satisfy more? Is there an element? Because there's a element of finding your groove that is about being good and and you know maybe strive like you like you and your music you said the perfectionism helped you you know become a better musician but in the end but in the end did it really help help me understand how does that fit into finding your groove yeah and it didn't make me happier it, it i don't think that i was more in the groove in my musical groove when i was striving for perfection i i was absolutely not in my groove i was I got in my groove musically after I started to give up on the perfection story. Oh. Yeah. I, I and I, I certainly enjoy playing at a high level, but that was that was uh sort of just a, a side benefit, I suppose, if you would. I could have enjoyed playing at a at a lower degree of proficiency, I I think uh pretty adequately. But it really got in the perfectionism got in the way of me finding my groove. Well, I think it gets in the way, too, of many people from a social perspective, particularly. And I think Thomas talks about this in his book a bit about, you know, the different types of perfectionism there are. And there's there's that perfection for yourself. But then you can also have a perfectionism that is about the what you require from others. And in those situations, it's like really difficult to um, have really positive, good relationships, which we know is a big piece of our well-being and happiness and um, all of those factors. And it's part of finding your groove is like, where, when are you good enough with yourself? 
um, that's part of finding your groove and and being okay with some less than perfect kind of elements and saying that's okay. I'm I'm okay with not being you know the best podcaster in right. the entire world. I'm good enough. Or at least in my brain, I'm good enough. I don't know if our <laughs> listeners think of that. They're going, God, Tim, get rid of Curtin. You'd be so much better. But I get know, that. I get that note all the time. Yeah, <laughs> I just don't tell you about it. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Um, but you know, there's an aspect of that. I think in in everybody's lives, there are certain things that you do want to make sure you're good at and and proficient to a certain level. And that level doesn't have to be just just good enough. It can be good to great to some other aspect, but there's a trade-off. And so where do we make that trade-off and how does that fit into our lives and making yeah. it overall better? Yeah, that, that striving, I, I think about uh, athletes, that if you're really good as a child and then you get into, say, some some special uh, leagues, just you know, above and beyond your your school stuff in grade school, and then in high school, you know, you're playing at a very high level, and your and your team goes to state, and 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 then you're expected. Well, I'm gonna, of course, I'm gonna play whatever sport I'm in in college, yeah. and that's going to be, you know, and then and then what's after that? You know, professional sports. It's like, well, wait a minute, the numbers draw down significantly between college players, the number of college players and the number of professional players. The number of high school players to college players, again, huge drop-offs, right? Huge so, drop-offs. Yeah. So I, I think striving for perfection can kind of get in the way of just enjoying the sport. You know, it's it's not a bad thing to work hard, have high goals. You talked about a, a PhD, having high goals, great. But the striving for perfection can, I think it's an inhibitor, actually. Yeah, it can, it can definitely create a um, angst within oneself because as even Vince Lombardi said, perfection is not attainable. There right? it is. There it so is. I think that's really important. Anything else? Anything else you want to just chat on about our well, company? We talked about UBI, four-day work week is kind of a utopian world. Come on. Um, what you know? Anything? I, I, they were all interesting, and it was all you know me. I love UBI, so there you go. So this might be kind of silly, but what about like uh, we're we've been talking about artists, and uh, we talked about music and musicians being perfectionists. Uh, what about musicians who are perfectionists? What about like Keith Richards is like known as being this incredible perfectionist in the Rolling Stones? Axel Rose from Guns N' Roses. I know that again, I, you hear these stories, right? And so right. is this part of that society, uh, societal aspect? We put these people like, well, if they're perfectionists, that's why they got to be so big. Ludicrous, right? He calls himself a, a perfectionist. <laughs> Tom Petty, wasn't he? He was always like, 57 takes to on this one yeah. little riff and you know five different guitars to get the absolutely right sound and yeah you know. uh, or, or Cheryl Crow I mean we've talked about the story of Cheryl Crow after Hugh Padgham who was a great producer actually produced Elton John and Sting after he had done that he produced Cheryl Crow and Cheryl Crow didn't like the record so she trashed it and went off and cut her contract with with the label paid had to pay the label for the cost of the record and then went and recorded it all over again on her own. Yeah. Like huh? if that isn't just an incredible, that's not just high goals. That feels like that's perfectionism. Well, to a certain degree. I mean, yeah, it's, it's crazy. So, which is, again, we're, lead, we're building into the societal acceptance. We're saying, well, in these cases, look at what it did. You have this, fantastic piece of art this pan fantastic piece of music because they were perfectionists but you kind of have to wonder like all right maybe maybe you could have had you know i can't get no satisfaction without you know however many takes that keith richards made him do or the specifics that it could have been you wonder good enough i don't know all right well <laughs> now we've just twisted everybody's brains around all this and uh and you know so we could we could definitely spend a ton of more time talking about thomas's great research and the book the perfection trap but i think we should just end it there i think we've covered all i think we ought to satisfice and just like cut say we've covered all of the um key points 
I, I think that's good. I think that uh, we did cover the key points. And I would just reiterate to Groovers that if they enjoyed this this conversation with Thomas, if they enjoyed our grooving session at all, share it. Share it in some way. Share it with a friend. Yeah. Share it with someone that they care about. Uh, maybe there's someone who's just being a little str- too striving for perfection and and might need to hear hear this uh, this story. So we encourage you to share that with them. And yeah. and, and hopefully you can take this uh, as a listener and uh, use it this week to help you go out and find your groove. Mm-hmm.